Welcome to Clear Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples. On today's podcast, part two of two on uh, Christology in the New Testament, in fact, the very beginnings of Christmas hymns, possibly in the New Testament. Uh, Ken, for those who might uh, not have listened to the first podcast, please give us a recap and why this is important and what we're going to hear today. Yeah, Christmas is my favorite time of year, Advent, Jesus coming, right? That's what Advent means, the coming. Uh, we celebrate the incarnation. In our previous show, we've looked at a remarkable passage. It's found in Philippians chapter 2. Um, the new perspective by biblical scholars is that this is actually a hymn. This was sung by the earliest Christians, and by earliest Christians, I mean Jewish Christians. And one of the points I want to develop in this program, Joe, is I love this passage because it takes Christianity all the way back to its Jewish roots. We see Jesus as the Jewish Messiah, and we see Jewish apostles, Peter and Paul, exalting Jesus at the right hand. So we're looking at this passage, uh, kind of mining uh, some of the doctrinal truth, uh, but also looking at, uh, uh, you know, some of the, apolo the apologetic import uh, of this. So uh, that's where we're going. We're going to develop it a little bit further, and uh, I think that these would be great programs uh, in terms of helping people celebrate uh, Advent and, and Christmas. Indeed. And one of the things that you're going to cover, uh, as you did in the last podcast and even more so on this one, is respond to the liberal scholars' claim that the deity of, of Christ was an evolutionary development. Uh, how long would you say that that uh, took place, maybe until the time the... Um, uh, Apostles' Creed came out, or somewhere around there, or what? Probably it's tied to the Creed of Chalcedon. Okay. So that's the 5th century, you know. Wow. Um, so the, the idea there was Jesus never thought he was God. The apostles never thought he was God. But as Gentiles joined the church, they distorted Christology and ultimately deified him. And what we're seeing here is these hymns and creeds, they go back even earlier than the epistles. I mean, Philippians was probably written in 61, 62, but this hymn probably goes back to the 30s. I mean, this is the very, I mean, Jesus, it's believed Jesus died and was resurrected either in 30 or 33. Um, even N.T. Wright, a great New Testament scholar, he says that the, these creeds were recited very early on when Peter and Paul were still living. You know, it strikes me uh, that given the early date uh, you're talking about, that uh, Christians knew doctrine uh, right away. Uh, we didn't have to wait necessarily until Paul and company were done writing their epistles or gospel writers. Uh, it seems that uh, there was a firm grasp of at least some doctrine early on. 
you're you're right. You're exactly right. And Joe, I'm going to have you read this passage again. Um, it is it's called the Car- Carmen Christi. It it is a hymn that was sung by the early uh, Christians. And I'm going to have you read it so our listeners can hear the statement one more time. All right, here it is. Philippians 2, 5 through 11. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's let's unpackage that again and focus on some of the apologetic import. Philippians is written 61-62. Philippians indicates, Paul indicates within Philippians that he is in prison. There is some differences. Could this have been an earlier imprisonment? I think the best uh, estimation, Joe, is that Paul is actually in prison in Rome, and this is where he's going to die. Um, virtually everybody believes that Peter and Paul were killed, executed, martyred in the Neronian persecution. Uh, Nero, one of the early Caesars, um, evil, uh, you know, just just a, a maniacal type of person. Uh, so Paul here is is imprisoned, but the hymn goes back uh, much, much earlier again to the 30s, maybe to the 40s, and notice the language, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. And then later in uh, verse 10, Paul reaches into the Old Testament, the book of Isaiah, where Yahweh says, I'm God and there is no other, and everybody's knee is going to bow to me. Everybody's tongue is going to confess that I am Lord. Here, Paul takes that passage that's exclusively true of Yahweh and gives it to us as if it applies to Christ. So the early Christians had a high Christology, which is devastating for this idea that, um, you know, the apostles never worshipped Jesus. Jesus never claimed to be God. This is an this is an evolved idea uh, that was developed uh, by the Christian Church. I think this is devastating to that 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 charge. I, I think the implications here are very very powerful. Again, this is a confessing church. They sang hymns. They recited creeds. Um, you know, are even to my evangelical friends. Nothing wrong with singing hymns. Nothing wrong with reciting creeds. Nothing wrong with the public reading of Scripture, which is done less and less. So the the early Jews who were Christians, they had a liturgy. They were developing uh, these ideas. Now, how did we come to the idea that 
there are actual creeds and hymns that predate the age of the epistle. Well, this is what we call a form. Uh, th this is called form criticism, where you look at the literary patterns of the Bible. Um, and as you read through Paul's epistles and Peter, you bump into, it's kind of jarring, where you get a different vocabulary. It becomes very poetic, and it's tightly packed. You know, if you write an ode or if you write a poem, it has to be lyrical. And, you know, it's its its unit as if it's, it's dropped right in there. So uh, there are places that scholars conclude. Uh, Philippians 2, 6 through 11 is a hymn. Colossians 1, 15 through 20, a creed. 1 Peter 3, 18 through 22, a creed. And even one of my very favorite passages, what is called the prologue in the Gospel of John, uh, begins in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, extends to verse 14, the Word became flesh. And then verse 18 talks about uh, the deity of Christ. That appears to also have been a creedal statement. And there are a number of other passages in the New Testament that are either creedal or hymnal statements. And, and Joe, this makes sense. I mean, how often have you heard a pastor in giving a sermon would appeal to one of the hymns that they love, that it, that people in the church understand? Uh, it appears that Peter and Paul did this in a remarkable way. And of course, this is not just a Christmas hymn. It's also an Easter hymn because God has taken a human nature. He's uh, one who and two what's. He is a single person, but he has a full human nature and divine nature. Um, and yet he submits himself to crucifixion. He is humiliated. He is cursed on the tree. And out of all of that ugliness and, and evil and pain and suffering comes salvation. Uh, and th this is just a, it's just packed with all kinds of uh, terrific statements. Now, let's, let's return to this idea of, uh, uh, you know, there being a, a new perspective. Um, it's what's interesting to me, Joe, is that uh, these early hymns and creeds from the earliest Jewish Christian worship, uh, which is significantly earlier than the New Testament books that contain them, uh, they refute this evolutionary theory. I mean, all of us want to get back to the earliest view of Jesus. I, I meet people all the time who say, you know, why do you read the church fathers? Why do, why do you read medieval scholars? You know, why not just read scripture? Why not get right back? Well, if you want right back, <laughs> you're going to you're going to read these passages that reveal this powerful Christology. So so Christianity, what I call historic Christianity, it has a unique relationship to Judaism. Uh, Jesus is the Jewish Messiah. Uh, Christians embrace the Old Testament as being the Word of God. Um, you know, all of our ideas are are rooted in Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We believe in the prophets, uh, Moses. Uh, we believe in uh, David. So 
Jesus was a Jew. He was the Jewish Messiah. And yet Christianity reflects a mutation of that. These Jews in the first century, to, for them to worship a human being, that, that would be blasphemy. But what seems clear is that Peter and Paul, because they were uh, connected to Jesus, they concluded that uh, while they worshiped Yahweh alone, and they designated him as the Father, that Jesus, the Son, who pre-existed in the form of God, to quote the Carmen Christi here, that they saw Jesus as an extension of Yahweh. And so I think it's important to realize that Christianity has a unique relationship to Judaism. And, and this is why I find anti-Semitism to be so perplexing. Um, you know, from a Christian point of view, we, we cherish the, the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, we have a deep respect for uh, God revealing himself to the people of God. And yet it's also true that there is a transformation taking place here. And that transformation is we read back into the Hebrew scriptures in light of the event of Jesus's uh, incarnation. And we interpret the Old Testament in light of the New Testament. And so I, boy, there, there is a lot here, uh, you know, to, to, to develop. Now, here, here's a quotation from Craig Blomberg, again, a New Testament scholar. He says, such beliefs in Christ's deity thus emerged early in the history of the church, not at some advanced stage in the evolution of Christian doctrine. He adds further, quote, oldest of all are passages used by Paul and Peter in their letters that scholars have identified as most likely predating the epistles in which they appear. And to quote Larry Hurtado, another New Testament scholar and historian of ancient Christianity, Hurtado says, quote, I simply want to emphasize that the origins of the worship of Jesus are so early that practically any evolutionary approach is rendered invalid as, histor as a historical explanation. Wow. Um, you know, uh, ever since I was a Christian, um, the liberal theological community, think of the Jesus Seminar, has always said, you can't take the Gospels as seriously as you do. You're, you're reading about a Christ of faith, not the Christ of history. Joe, I think what this illustrates is the Christ of faith is the Christ of history. The Christ of history is the Christ of faith. There's no evolutionary uh, development that goes on here. And here, here's Hurtado again. Uh, he says, quote, the evidence for the speed and the early nature in which the primitive church worshiped Jesus as God, he says, is a more explosively quick phenomenon, a religious development that was more like a volcanic eruption, close quote. Hmm. That is that is the earliest Christians had the highest Christology. Instead of having a low Christology that evolved into a high Christology, no, it happens immediately mm -hmm. because now we have, and by the way, I'm impressed with the early dates of these biblical books. 
But this is even pushing it even further back, Joe. And uh, so, so let me let me enumerate what I think are three critical takeaways, and then we can we can talk a bit more about some of these ideas. I think the first takeaway that I have from the Carmen Christi in Philippians two is while the books of the New Testament take us back to the apostolic age, let's let's talk a little bit about that. So first you have the oral period where the apostles are preaching and teaching. Uh, then there is the recognition that, uh, you know, they're getting older and they want some more permanent form. And uh, so the apostles, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they produce the gospels. But there's an intervening period uh, between the oral stage and the gospel stage, and that's the epistle stage. That's where Paul, uh, who probably became a Christian uh, very soon after Jesus's life, death, and resurrection, I mean, his, uh, his Galatian epistle could go back to the uh, late 40s. Um, 1 Corinthians, where he has a creedal statement in chapter 15, goes back to the mid-50s. So you have some very early dates. Now, uh, this November uh, that we've just worked through, uh, it was November 22nd was the 60th anniversary of JFK's death. Uh, I know I'm an old man, but I can remember it. I can remember something happened 60 years ago. Imagine what the apostles Imagine their memories about the person of Jesus, how how it ultimately changed their life. So, uh, the books of the New Te Testament take us back to the apostolic, the apostolic age, but the primitive creeds, confessions, and hymns contained in the New Testament books press back to the earliest period of Jewish Christianity, not just early Christianity like the time of Athanasius or Augustine or Jerome. Or Basil, no, this is this is Jewish Christianity. This is this is the earliest period. I think that's a I think that's a good reason to to praise God. I think it is a good argument to present uh, to people who commonly say you can't trust the New Testament. Uh, here's another apologetic takeaway. These primitive creeds, confessions, and hymns illustrate that the earliest Christians viewed Jesus as divine. A high Christology rather than a low, a low Christology would be that he was just a man, just a great teacher, just a rabbi. A high Christology is the language we get out of the Carmen Christi, Philippians 2, 6 through 11, though he's in the form of God, though he had equality with God. He didn't have to hold on to it. Um, what we discover is that this serves to falsify the claim that belief in Jesus' deity went through an extended period of evolution. I, I, I think that's devastating to what many uh, liberal scholars think uh, and believe. And in, here's a third one. The earliest Christians, though staunch Jewish monotheists, Nevertheless, almost immediately worshiped Jesus Christ as an extension of Yahweh and thus exhibited a mutation of traditional monotheism. Uh, 
Now, again, we've done shows in the past, Joe, where we compared Christianity to Judaism. And I think I think what's critical here is Christian, Christians have deep roots in Judaism. And yet the Christian interpretation uh, is a mutation where we begin to say, yes, we believe the Father is the one true God. But there is also uh, two other persons who are extensions of that one God. And if you go back to the Shema, Deuteronomy 6.4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord is one. Joe, you can recite the Shema in a Trinitarian way. The word one is, is not a mathematical identity. It, it has diversity, and the two will become one flesh. It's the same word one. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Well, um, there's only one God. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit all share that one divine essence. Uh, in a Trinitarian sense, we have one what? One divine essence, but it's reflected in the diversity of the three persons. And so the three persons are all fully and equally God. And then I think you can look at the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, you know, the messenger of the Lord, there, there are a variety of passages. God speaking of himself in the plural. Um, I think we can be confident that, no, there, there's no formal teaching of the Trinity in the Old Testament. And for that matter, neither in the New Testament. But the New Testament infers that that God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And then looking at it, uh, from a Trinitarian New Testament perspective, we can identify themes in the Old Testament. And so, um, you know, something that has always been important to me, um, and, I, you know, I, I'll, even, I'll even say uh, on, a, on a personal level, um, when I was baptized as a Roman Catholic at four years old, my parents were evangelicals from West Virginia that came to California. That must have been quite a culture shock to move from a rural part of West Virginia to downtown Los Angeles. This was in the mid-50s. I was the only child in my family born in Los Angeles. By the way, born right as the Dodgers came to uh, Los Angeles, which mm -hmm. I always enjoy thinking about. Um, well, I was baptized at St. Athanasius Catholic Church. On the front door of the church, it says Athanasius Contra Mundum. Is the world against Athanasius? Well, then it's Athanasius against the world, the defender of the deity of Christ. I see in my own ministry how critically important the Trinity, the two natures of Christ are. Uh, even here at Reasons to Believe, sometimes people say, Ken, why don't you talk more about science and creation? And I say, well, uh, I'm happy to, but remember who that creator is. Remember that the Father is the principal agent of creation, but Jesus and the Spirit are his co-agents. And I like to point out that you know, we're a science faith organization. We believe in the two books. It's It really is critical that we hold on to our historic Christian faith. And I, I feel very strongly 
that I don't want to be original if original means I come up with something new that's different than classical Christianity. So it, it drives me back. I I can't help but go back to these great truths because it's only the incarnation that makes the atonement possible. It's only the Trinity that makes the incarnation possible. These doctrines are logically connected together. So, Joe, I think those apologetic elements are very powerful. And it's good reason during the Christmas season to, I think, decorate and celebrate. Um, you know, realize this is a unique time. Was Jesus born December 25th? I don't know. Maybe not. Well, there are some scholars who think maybe he was. That is in tradition. There is a tradition that says Jesus was born December 25th. But even if he's not, this is the time in which we, as a classical Christianity, as historic Christians, come together and say, just as we celebrate the, birth, the birthdays of people we love, we're celebrating this great event of the Son, the second person of the Trinity, being born in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And, you know, I love the church year. Um, I don't live to myself alone. My life is now to be understood in the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so I like tradition. I, I like these elements. But even, even if you come from, you know, uh, a non-denominational church, even if you don't have a deep kind of formal liturgy, you can still do very special things with your family during this time of year. Yeah. Ken, a, a question for you, uh, and I'm sure it, it comes out in these resources that you recommended on the first podcast and that you'll repeat for us here. But uh, this new perspective, uh, is there evidence that uh, Hurtado and Blomer or whoever it is uh, has written about it? Are they finding new things uh, back in the literature, or, or what is it that provides this new perspective? Yeah. Well, um, again, they would say that um, probably nobody before the 20th century uh, kind of picked up on this. That, that's kind of a peculiar thing. And, of course, when people talk about new ideas or new perspectives— I'm always a little concerned, but I, I think what I think what's ironic here, Joe, is that these these critical methods, and 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 again, let me kind of develop that. So, certainly, since the time of the Enlightenment, people began to question the inspiration of Scripture. They question, uh, you know, the authority of Scripture, its reliability, and they developed various. Uh, critical ways of thinking. Uh, so you have literary criticism, you have form criticism. And, you know, they look at things like, well, who wrote these books? Who is the author? How were they formed together? Uh, how do we get Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? What's the dependence upon these kinds of things? Here's the irony. I think in many respects, it is these higher critical theories that have led us to discover this. Um, you know, 
it's the critical analysis of scripture that led scholars to say, well, wait, wait a second here. I'm, I know I'm reading Paul. I'm pretty confident Paul wrote Philippians. Um, this is consistent with the writing style in Ephesians and Colossians. And then all of a sudden, we bump into these statements that are very lyrical. They're very compact. Uh, they appear to be things like a, a creedal statement or something that would be uh, sung or recited. So uh, this is now the dominant view. This is not a view, Joe. This is now the dominant view. Yeah. That these reflect that way. And again, I think it, you know, it brings us back to uh biblical scholars. I think it is fair to say that no book in the history of the human race has been scrutinized like the Bible, particularly the Gospels, but the Bible as a whole. People have been looking for reasons to question it, to, to doubt it. Uh to offer a logical defeat uh, for it, um, and yet, and yet, Scripture stands, and yet, uh, even in the 21st century, where we have uh, so much information and knowledge, we have discovered um, that historic Christianity is not something that evolved; it appears to have been right from the get-go. And um, again, you can read about this. Um, there's a number of other scholars. In my book, God Among Sages, I give a number of other scholars besides Hurtado, uh, besides Blomberg. And, um, you know, I, in preparation for writing an article, uh, the, this will all be in a blog article that RTB will have on my reflection site. Uh, but I went back and I looked at a lot of commentaries. I looked in a lot of texts that dealt with Philippians 2. And uh, I discovered this is this is the definitive position now. So if you don't agree with it, realize that, um, yeah, it's new, but it's new in pointing to the truth of the old, if you will. Yeah, good. Okay, just a just a couple things. Um, I think Joe, I want to bring us back to some things we said in that first program. Um, you know, J.I. Packer in his book Knowing God. Here's that quote. He says, "Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as is the truth of the incarnation." You know, I like to read Lewis's fiction. I've read Tolkien's fiction. Um, we believe as historic Christians that God has come into the world. Um, Lewis and Tolkien would say this is a true myth. A, a myth is not something, in, in their minds, it's not a lie. It's not a falsehood. Rather, a, a myth is a story that points to a greater truth, but it doesn't have, it doesn't get all the data right. Well, um, for Tolkien and Lewis, Christianity is the true myth. It's actually this story that points, but it, it's actually true historically. And so the idea that God has visited our planet, I love that idea. 
I, I go back to this quotation uh, from the astronaut uh, Jim Irwin. He says, Jesus walking on the earth is more important than man walking on the moon. You know, in my book, Seven Truths That Changed the World, I have a chapter entitled, God Walk the Earth. How does that apply to the hiddenness of God? What does that say to the people who knock on our door, uh, Joe, and tell us, you know, Jesus is not God. He's a he's an angel, but he's not our savior. Um, what does that say to the to the liberal scholars? I, I think this is a this is a powerful case that we can we can make and we should make. Uh, and if I can bring it back to uh, our time at Christmas, uh, Joe, this is why I think catechism is so important. Um, yes, I certainly believe that Christianity, in part, is a personal relationship with God. Uh, that's very true. But Christianity is also a knowledge and faith tradition. There are things to be learned about God. We are in that Jewish tradition of having a book. We're bookish people. Um, you know, what, what made Christianity very different than the pagan religions, the pagan religions were almost exclusively temple religions. Uh, they didn't have a, a revered text. Uh, it was all the temple. Um, but in Judaism, you have a text. You then also have a temple. Um, the emergence of Christianity produced all kinds of, of written books and manuscripts. Um, when civilization came apart, when the Roman Empire fell, uh, the, the monks, the priests in the monastery, they copied manuscripts. Thank God they did. Um, this idea of catechizing, this idea of, of learning, um, you know, it, it comes full circle. Our, our churches also need to be schools. Um, why are we, why do we see people deconverting? Why do people deconstruct their faith? Is there more of that happening now? I don't know. Uh, it seems like more of it's happening now, or at least I see it, you know, on sources like social media and various places. But again, I, I think this is where careful study, I, I'm very grateful uh, to Blomberg, uh, you know, to the people here that uh, I quote, um, you know, Peter Toon, these individuals who've worked through this material and have, have made the, a powerful case, I think our churches need to have elements like that. We, we need classes where people can study. And, and Joe, we need classes where people can come in and say, you know, I have, I have doubts. Uh, I have questions. I, I'm struggling with the intellectual content. How do I... How do I work through these kinds of things? Um, you know, truth, truth is is a very, it's a sacred thing to Christians. And um, truth is not afraid of challenges that come. 
And, you know, we all have doubts. I, I, I like C.S. Lewis's comment. He said, yeah, there are times as a Christian I have doubts. But he said, when I was an atheist, I had doubts where Christianity looked very plausible. Well, you know, you can't go by your these seasonal moods that we have. Uh, you need to recognize that there is historical data to be to be examined and i think this is a great time of year to to think about those kinds of things and and to return uh you know to to those times and to buy some books not only for yourself but for other people uh christians and your family your friends maybe for some of your skeptical relatives and i want to give some recommendations that that uh are fairly inexpensive, Joe. As you know, books have gone up quite a bit, like just about everything else. <laughs> um, but there are some really terrific books. So let me let me give you a few of them. Um, I think that uh, a great book is Knowing God by J.I. Packer, and I want to focus on his chapter on the Incarnation. Now, again, that's a book you'll want to read over your life. Um, it it. Packer was really a very fine Christian theologian, uh, and I love what he says. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as this truth of the incarnation. Another book that I really enjoy, it had a big impact on me. Michael Green had the privilege when I went to England a, few, a number of years ago, he and I gave a, a co-lecture on the world's religions and the uniqueness of Jesus. Michael Green, who wrote 50 books, has a little paperback book called, it's entitled, Who is This Jesus? Who is this Jesus? I, I think it's a modern classic. I, I love it. Some ancient books. How about, uh, how about the great Athanasius? Uh, his book, On the Incarnation. It's a paperback. You know, it's, uh, let's see. It's only 120 pages long, masterpiece. Uh, how about one of the classic uh, philosophical treatments of the incarnation by Anselm, St. Anselm, born 1033, died 1109. His book, Cur Deus Homo Latin, Why the God-Man, Why Has God Become Man? You know, these are... These are great books. If you want a very popular book, I remember I remember reading Josh McDowell's More Than a Carpenter, and it it hooked me. Uh, there are there are there are good books to read on all different levels. And um, you know, last year I read Mere Christianity three times, and. Mm -hmm. Every time I read it, I felt instructed, I felt convicted, I felt inspired. That's what great books do. And of course, then it should point us back to Scripture, um, which contains these creeds and hymns. And God's Word is like nothing else. Uh, scripture has no peer. Um, you know, that that is something that we need to hold on deeply to. So, Joe, I'm hoping these programs, these two programs, will be helpful and inspiring and encouraging during this great time of year. Yeah, well, they certainly have been for me. In fact, uh, I usually try to read um, 
out of the Gospel of Luke uh, this time of year. So I think I'm going to take up this Philippians 2, 5 through 11 passage, the Carmen Christi, and either add that or, or you know, uh, supp uh, supplant it. So you give me a good idea for Christmas reading, Ken. I, I, I like appreciate it. that. And, uh, you know, one of the things that impresses me about the early Christians, and, you know, I guess I haven't thought about them as much as I ought to, but one of your apologetic points was that the earliest Christians, though staunch Jewish monotheists, nevertheless almost immediately worshipped Christ as an extension of Yahweh and thus exhibited a mutation of traditional monotheism. That impresses me um, yeah. about them, that, uh, you know, here they were monotheists, and it's like I'm sure there was a world of all kinds of other gods out there, but Jesus came along and he he was different. He was Yahweh. So I just, I don't know, I, I appreciate that point. Great. All right. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this uh, podcast. Thanks for listening. Be sure to share the link and tell your friends to get clear thinking sent to their device by subscribing to the Reasons to Leave podcast on Apple Podcasts, Podbean, and most podcast services. For Ken Samples, this is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Merry Christmas to you, and thanks for listening, and join us for the next edition of Clear Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.